My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Good morning, good to see you. What I want you to do is stand up with me. We're going to jump right into our passage that we read every morning as we come together as we're journeying through God's Word. So we're going to switch it up here once we get into the New Testament here in uh, September. So we're really excited to start that journey. Uh, but we're going to read our passage we've been reading for a couple weeks now out of Second Peter. So go ahead and read with me. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Good job. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to ask you a very silly question, okay? But I want you to just entertain it because I will bring it to a point, okay? Because I know immediately your response is probably going to be absolutely yes. Dumb question, Paul. And if you're thinking as a school teacher, Paul, there are no dumb questions. It's because you never had me as a student. So that's why you you still think that. Keep operating in that mentality. That's fine. I'm going to ask you a dumb question, okay? That's what it is. But there's a point to it, I promise. Here's the question. Do you ever feel like the world should be better? Told you it was a dumb question, right? Of course you do. It's so easy, right? Just drive. And immediately you're aware, that guy should be better, that guy should be better, this guy doesn't signal, right? All that stuff. It's so easy for us to see that the world should be better, right? Maybe, maybe more serious than just like traffic violations, right? When we see somebody being mistreated, we think to ourselves, no, 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 this is not how it should be. Or maybe, a little more personal, we get mistreated, and we think to ourselves, no, 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 this is not how things should be. It's very easy to look outside and say the world is not as it should be. And I think everybody in this room, outside of this room, everybody besides maybe a two-year-old would tell you, yes, the world should be better. Okay, now let's, let's take it a little deeper. And if the other question was a silly question, this one might be one that upsets you, but that's okay. Let's ask this question. 
should you be better? Ooh, you're like, oh, I, saw, I see where you're going, pastor. Sneaky, sneaky pastor, <laughs> right? Yes, the world should be better. That's easy, right? We acknowledge that simple, easy, quick answer. Yes, I know the world should be better. Paul, I've got a list of people who should be better. But let's turn that to ourselves and say, wait, should I be better? Right? That impulse and that drive for us to want to make a better world, the world as it should be, that leads us to political uh, uh, movement, that leads us to social initiatives, right? It leads us to reform, all those things. When we look at ourselves and say, you know what, I should be better. I'm not who I should be. I need to be better. That leads us to uh, exercise, maybe uh, a diet, or just any sense of self-improvement. Now here's the thing that's kind of annoying about this hunger and impulse and desire for things to be better. That sense of should that nags at all of us. We get into this cycle of should and it's a sad cycle. Because what happens is we say, yeah, yeah, things should definitely be better. I should be better. And then we commit ourselves, I will be better or I will help make this better. And then it doesn't work. And we kind of repeat that cycle over and over and over again. This is not as it should be. I will make it better. But then I don't. And it kind of nags at us, this kind of hunger. Now, it's not that we don't do some good things. I don't want you to think that Paul is so cynical. I'm, I'm not saying that. But I think what happens, and maybe you know this even in your own life. Maybe you've seen it as you've tried to make the world a better place. Or you tried to make yourself better. You never seem to totally satisfy the should in your heart. I want to make this world better. So, so you do things and you seek improvement and some good things happen and you're excited about that. But it never works out completely and it doesn't really satisfy deeply that sense of should. That sense of should is just insatiable, right? Always hungry, always seeking more. The same thing is true when we look at ourselves. Right? Maybe you, you lost a couple pounds or maybe you took on a good habit and you pushed away another habit but then there's always another sense of I should be better and you get in this cycle and as annoying as that hunger is and that impulse is for should it's very informative to us it teaches us a very valuable lesson in fact the prophet Jeremiah is going to make this point. The same thing we learn from that sense of should in our heart is the same thing that Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 31, is trying to press forward to the people of Israel while they're living in exile. He's trying to show them that that sense of should, that sense, that kind of agony that the world should be better, that they should be better, that that sense will not come to completion and that something really deep and definitive happens. In fact, that leads us to the big idea for today. This is the main idea, I think, of Jeremiah 31. And the point I want to bring to you is this. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. The big idea today is this. Our sense of should points to surgery. Our sense of should points to surgery. We know things should be better. We know we should be better. And when we seek improvement, we think, uh, seek to, to better things, it's almost like we're taking vitamins. And vitamins are great. Vitamins are good. You should take your vitamins. They're going to improve your health. But if you need heart surgery, you need more than vitamin C. I mean, you could take all the vitamins you want. Great. Your skin's going to look good, right? All this other stuff. But you need change in here. 
And this is the point that Jeremiah is going to make to us. The reason we're never satisfied and we're always saying this should be better, I should be better, is because we know that we need surgery. We need a deep change. We need more than just correcting our behaviors. We need someone to transform our character. We need more than just correcting our actions. We need somebody to change our nature. Let me show you this. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to start in verse 8. But before I get there, let me explain kind of what Jeremiah is doing. Right now, the people of God are in exile. They're not in a very fun place. The kingdom of God, the, the, the Israelite kingdom, right, God's people in the Old Testament used to be one big nation. It didn't last very long. They broke into two nations. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was taken away by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The, the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken away later in 560, sorry, 586 BC. And now those people are pulled away, not by the Assyrians, but the Babylonians. And they're living in exile. And enter in Jeremiah's speech here in Jeremiah 31. He's speaking to the exiles, those who have been taken so their brothers were taken away over 100 years ago in the northern kingdom. They were taken away by the Assyrians. And now the Babylonians have come in and they've conquered the people and ripped them out of their homeland. And now they're sitting there in exile. And Jeremiah speaks this message and he gives this incredible message of a revival. Like just like what we sang about. A revival where the people of God will change their behavior. They'll change their actions. And God will change their circumstances. He will bless them in a way that they've never been blessed before. And there's this really bright, vibrant picture of a wonderful, beautiful time. But if you've read the Bible with us as we've walked through the Bible, there's kind of this nagging question in your mind. Okay, Jeremiah, this sounds really good. But we've seen good before. And it doesn't last. How do we know this time will last? We've seen good times before. We've seen behavioral change before. We've seen the people say, yeah, we should do this, we will do this, but then it doesn't work. So what ensures that this wonderful, vibrant time of life, of, of change, of transformation, of revival, of restoration, how do we know this one is going to last? Well, let's look at verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 31, and I just want to show you how awesome this time is. How vibrant, how beautiful, how blessed this revival is. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 8. This is what Jeremiah the prophet says. For I will bring them from the north and from the distant corners of the earth, all the places where God's people have been exiled. I will not forget the blind and lame and the expectant mothers and women in labor. A great company will return. What is he describing here, right? Somewhat of a random list of people. The blind, the lame, expectant mothers, mothers in labor. Why does he mention those kind of categories? Here's what Jeremiah is trying to communicate. Here's what God is trying to communicate through Jeremiah. He's saying everybody's going to get in. Everybody's coming back. No matter their circumstances, no matter their ailment, no matter their, their weakness, Wherever they are, whether they're in a needy position, which would be an expectant mother or a woman in labor, those would be the ones who would be in the most sense of need, especially in the ancient Near East. You were so dependent on family support at this time. 
And so these ladies going through this situation, whether they were pregnant or they were in labor, those are the ones who needed help. They needed assistance. And God is saying, I'm bringing a caravan of these ladies. We're going to carpool all the pregnant ones. We're just going to drop them in this van and we're all going to go. That's going to be an interesting trip, right? I want to drive the other van, the other van. Give me the blind and the lame. I'll take those ones because you know how many potty breaks we're going to have? right? Jeez, okay? But what is he saying here? What he's saying is everybody gets in. This is a time where nobody's excluded. No matter where you are, you're coming to the party. Okay, this sounds pretty awesome. And in this party, there's no more suffering. In this party, there's no pain. Right, look at this, verse 15. Very interesting way in which he kind of describes this. Verse 15, this is what the Lord says. A cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. Now let me explain what's happening here. Rachel, the one mentioned here who is mourning and weeping, Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, who was later changed his name to, or had his name changed to Israel. Rachel had two sons with Jacob, Joseph and Benjamin. And then Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Ephraim and Manasseh. And so she was the matriarch of two of the tri- or three of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Ephraim, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So she's kind of this matriarch. What happened for her, though, is when she was giving birth to Benjamin, she died in childbirth. And it's described uh, in kind of very vivid language of her sorrow and her pain and her anguish. And so that idea is taken up kind of figuratively here by the prophet. And he's saying, just like she was in agony over Benjamin when he was being born, it's almost like her ghost now still weeps when her children are in pain. That's what's being described here. But now the prophet is almost going to speak. Now again, this is figurative language here. He's going to speak to her and say, don't mourn anymore because your children are in pain. Right, look at God, console her, if you will. Verse 16. But now this is what the Lord says. Don't weep any longer. For I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. I've heard Israel saying, you discipline me severely like a calf that needs training for the yoke. The idea here is he's going to get to a point of confession. But what he's told the Rachel, this kind of ghost, if you will, this ghost mother of the people of Israel is, there's no more reason for you to mourn. Your people are safe. Your children are safe. Everybody gets in and pain is gone. This sounds awesome. Now verse 18, I read it. This is also a time where God's people just humbly confess their sin. Right, let's, let's, let's read verse 18 again. I have heard Israel saying, so this is the people of God, what are they saying? You disciplined me severely like, like a calf that needs training for the yoke. Turn me again to you and restore me for you alone are the Lord my God. I turned away from God, but then I was sorry. I love this line. I kicked myself for my stupidity. Don't you love that? Can we tattoo that on our children? It's scripture, so it's totally okay. Like this took, God would honor that. I kicked myself for my stupidity, and I was thoroughly ashamed of all I did in my younger days. Can we, before they become teenagers, we need this ceremony. Just, (laughs) sir, can you put a tattoo of Jeremiah 31, right? Don't you love just a very humble posture? Man, I kicked myself. God, you knew what you were doing. 
God, you had a design for every area of our life, our finances, our family, our, our romantic life, everything. And you know what? I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And, and, and I, I realized that. In my younger days, I realized that. But now I see that I was wrong. Doesn't this sound like a great time? Everybody's coming back. Everybody's in the caravan. It's a time where there's no pain, no mourning anymore. All that agony that Rachel had when she saw her children and her great-great-great-great-grandchildren living under oppression, they're freed from that. God's people humbly confess their sin. And then look at how God blesses this. Look at verse 25. It says this, For I have given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrowing. Oh, man. Rest to the weary. You don't have to work anymore. Are you in sorrow? Let me give you joy. Look at verse just above that. He talks about this unity that God is now blessing. Actually, verse 23. This is what the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people of Judah, its towns will again say, The Lord bless you, O righteous home, O righteous mountain. Townspeople and farmers and shepherds alike will live together in peace and happiness. Man, this is great. Unity, inclusion, everybody's in, everybody's joyful, everybody's happy, everybody's at rest. There's no more crying or mourning. Doesn't this feel really good? Now, if you've been walking with us through the Bible, I think this just naturally happens when you read through the Old Testament. You're just naturally a cynic. It's true. You just get to the point of like, this isn't going to work. It's not. Like this is the, not the first time in the Old Testament that we've seen revival, restoration. We've seen God's people confess their sin and God bless them. It's not the first time. We've seen it from the very beginning. Even with Moses, before Moses died, before he wrote the book of Deuteronomy, as he's giving these speeches to the people before they get into the promised land. They've just become a people. This is when Israel really becomes Israel, when he frees them from Egyptian oppression and he's moving them into the promised land and then they're at the very edge of the promised land and Moses says, guys, get your act together. Change things up. You should be better. And they say, yeah, we will be better. And guess what happens? They don't do it. The next leader, Joshua, he steps in before he kind of takes command and moves them in. He says, guys, you need to get things right. You should be better and they commit it to it yeah 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 we will be better and they don't do it the people of Israel have no king there's this, there's this prophet and priest who comes in and leads the people his name is Samuel wonderful awesome leader he calls the people of God to the same thing hey guys you should be better yeah yeah I, we know we should be better in fact okay Samuel we will be better and guess what it doesn't happen Hezekiah, the king, he calls for great reform. The people respond, yes, we should be better. You know what, Hezekiah? We will be better. And it doesn't last. Josiah, the king, causes great reform among the people. He says, guys, I, I found this book. I found this, and we're not doing things right. Man, we should be better. And they say, yes, we will be better. But it doesn't last. Right, so you get to a moment like this and you're just reading through this chapter and you think, what's going to make this thing last, man? What's going to break this cycle of should? Because we've seen this before. We know they should be better. They commit to being better. But it doesn't work. And maybe you feel that yourself. Paul, I know I should be better. 
right? That question about if the world should be better, you know, if I was better, the world would be better. And I think it's very biblical to kind of start with yourself and say, I should be better. And you've committed, I will be better. But it doesn't get to the main problem. Right? Your, your self-improvement, your discipline, your efforts, they're like vitamins. They're good. They make some changes. Great. But you know that you need heart surgery. Right? You, you know that sense of should will never be satisfied until you have surgery. Because the problem is deeply rooted in here. Outward improvement's not enough. You need inward transformation. Changing your actions is not enough. You need your character to change, your very nature to change. And here's the crazy part. 800 years before Jeremiah ever spoke of this vibrant revival, 800 years before, Moses knew this should happen. Moses, that great leader who pulled the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery with the blessing of God, of course, He gives them all these rules, all these laws, and before he dies, he gives his last couple sermons. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And you think my sermons are long, read Deuteronomy. See how long it takes you to get through it. So Moses gives us, and the very end of Deuteronomy, it's so funny because this is what Moses essentially says. This isn't going to work. I'm giving you all these rules, all these laws, and if you follow God's way, he'll bless you. But it's not going to work. Talk about depressing Could you imagine knowing this is my last days? Okay, Moses charged the people up. They're about to go into the promised land. He's like, all right, I got a message of hope. You're not going to do it. Peace out, guys. I'm going to go die on a mountain. Right? Look at this. Watch. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me show you this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just listen to this again. And remember, this is 800 years before Jeremiah ever gives this message of a beautiful revival and restoration of God's people. Moses saw it coming. He knew vitamins wouldn't work. He knew there needed to be surgery. Listen to his description, Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, in the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses, I have listed for you. And when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, that's exactly where they are. Take heart, all these instructions. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and with all your soul all the commands I've given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belongs to your ancestors, and you will possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. This is exactly the dream that Jeremiah is giving to the people in Jeremiah chapter 31. But look at what God does. Verse 6. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart, soul, so you may live. He needs to change your heart. How can Jeremiah make this beautiful description of this revival and restoration? How can he do that truthfully? How can he promise that to the people? 
If we've seen this before, and it's a pattern over and over and over again of disappointment. Really, 800 years of Israelite history is just consecutive disappointment after disappointment. I mean, it's really agonizing to walk through from Moses all the way to Jeremiah. It really is, because you get this moment of like, this is going to work this time. This is going to work this time. And you're like, okay. 800 years. God let all of this happen for 800 years to prove one point to us. You need surgery. You can't do it on your own. That nagging sense of should in your heart. I've embedded that thing in you. You know the world should be better. You know you should be better. But you'll never get there. You'll never get there. And you know why? Because my work has to be in you first. And this is how Jeremiah can promise this revival, this, res- this restoration will be permanent. Because God will do what Moses said he would do. He's going to change your heart. Look at verse 31 of Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Covenant means agreement. Not the old covenant. The old covenant, when, when, when Moses led the people out, he gave them the Ten Commandments. You saw the movie. He gave them the Ten Commandments and he made this agreement with, with them. Essentially, obey and be blessed. Obey and be blessed. Well, they couldn't completely obey because their heart wasn't right. It wasn't the law's fault. The law was good. The law was right. The law was not faulty. The law wasn't wrong. What was wrong was us. And for 800 years, we learned this lesson through the cycle of should, will, don't. We learned it over and over again. God, you've got to do something. And he says, I'm going to do a new work, a new covenant, a new agreement. And look at how how many times Jeremiah says, God's going to do the work. God's going to step in. Who's going to own this new work? Who's going to initiate this work? Who's going to make it happen? Whose effort is really put forth here? It's God over and over and over again. You'll see when I read that God will say five times, I will. And then he'll use the pronoun my three times. He's emphasizing what? I got this. I'm not giving you an exercise program. Hey, I'll work with you on this. No, I'm going to perform heart surgery. You ever seen a heart surgery? Ask the guy on the gurney, hand me the scalpel. Have you ever seen that? Like open heart, things open. Sir, yeah. Can you hand me the scalpel? Yeah, yeah, I got it. Here you go. Right? A heart surgeon doesn't need your assistance. He's just like, lay back, count to 10. That's your job at that point. Your job is what? Surrender. This is exactly what God shows us. Look at, again, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them out of the land and brought them out of the land of Egypt, they broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord, they broke it. And that's true for all of us. We all break the law. We can't do it as much as we try. As much as we have that drive because of that sense of should inside of us, we can't seem to meet the law and live under God's blessing. But praise God, he comes through. Look at verse 33. But this is the new covenant. I will 
make with the people of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Who's doing the work? God is. God says, I'm going to open them up. And instead of putting the law on stone tablets, instead of putting it outside of them, I'm going to take that law, I'm going to put it right inside of them. It's so interesting because Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 1, how deep is sin? Sin is written on the hearts of Judah, he says. With a diamond chisel, it's written in there. So that's how deep the work has to be. God says, I will write it and I will take my law and I'll put it right inside you. Look at verse 34. And they will have no need to teach their neighbors. Nor will they have any need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. That last phrase there when he's talking about nobody's going to need to teach anybody. What is he saying there? This is what God is saying. It doesn't mean we don't need teachers. That wouldn't work, right? When we look at the New Testament, clearly teachers are called to help instruct God's people. What he's saying here is the community of God is not going to be spiritually mixed anymore. When God was working with the people of Israel, they were a spiritually mixed people. Some people believed, other peoples didn't believe. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about there's Israel and there's true Israel. There's the big group that is Israel, but then there's true Israel, those who truly believe. What he's saying right now is the community I'm making spiritually, what's called the church in the New Testament, he says it's not going to be spiritually mixed. Because I'm going to do the work, I'm going to change them and transform them. And don't think of church as a building. What he's saying, when I build the church... Belief will be in everybody and you won't have to tell people to believe because I will put belief in their heart. I will change them and I will transform them. That's what he's saying. Do you know how incredibly freeing this truth is? At first it's depressing. Right? The agonizing sense of should points to surgery. We get on that kind of treadmill, if you will. Always running, always exerting energy, but never moving forward spiritually. We go to that sense of, I know I should be better. All right, I'm going to commit to do better. All right, I did a little better, but it didn't work. And you get to that point where you just want to throw up your hands and say, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm exhausted. And you get that sense of despair of how bad the situation is. Well, for 800 years, the people of Israel lived under that despair. But then God came in and said, I'm coming as your surgeon and I'll fix the problem. How relieving is that? As a follower of Jesus Christ, this is such a liberating truth. Such a liberating truth. That you can be better. Not only you should be better, but you can be better. You can be better, why? Because he can change your heart. Because he could step in and change your desires. He could go in and reshape your character. Now what you don't want to do is you don't want to hear it this way. It doesn't mean he makes you perfect in a moment. No, 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 that's not what it means. It does mean this. There is a definitive work of God when you realize 
that you can't handle your own sin. You can't remove your guilt, you can't take away your shame, and you can't transform yourself into what you should be. You get to that moment of despair, and then you call out a confession to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, only by your death and resurrection can I have forgiveness of sins. Will you change my life? Will you transform me? Here I am, I'm jumping on the table, do the surgery. You get to that moment, that's when God changes your heart. It's a definitive work in space-time. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect in a moment. Don't think of it like that. Rather, it's almost like you become an acorn that's going to become a tree. And in that acorn is everything that tree needs. Just a little bit of time, some water, and some sunlight. If it's nurtured correctly, it will grow into a tree. This is what God is saying. I'm going to start a work in you, a definitive work to change your very nature. And I will finish that work. There's no, I may finish that work. No, I'm the surgeon. I put the heart in and I pumped its first beat. And I'm pushing that blood through every part of your body. Really, Christianity, the growth in Christianity, is really becoming what you already are. You're a new creation, so you start to live new. I'll tell you, you know how how freeing this is. Let me illustrate this just with my own life. I was talking with the staff and I was talking with my wife as well. And as we were journeying through this kind of study, this devotion, uh, as a team, we went through this 10-week study as a team because I really wanted to prioritize spiritual formation among the staff. And man, God really showed up and blessed it. You should ask our staff about it. It's been a really, really profitable time for us. But we were working through about week five. And kind of unpacking some maybe sin patterns in our life. And we had to call them out and identify them. And that was a really hard process. Because here's what I, I realized. I let the sin of bitterness take root into my heart. I, I got hurt recently by somebody who I never thought I'd be hurt by. And, and, and I couldn't shake it. Like I couldn't get rid of it. And, and then in trying to battle through that, how arguments would just pop in my head in a moment, right? How I could get the feelings of a defensiveness and insecurity like in my head. I was just renting space to bitterness in my head. And I was just allowing that dialogue to continue on, those kind of toxic thoughts to continue on. That was bitterness in my heart. And then I realized as I started to look at that and unpack that and try to dissect that, I realized there were, there were offenses that were over a decade old that I was still bitter about. And I remember going to the team, and I remember confessing this to, we, had, we broke up into the guys and gals, and so I was sitting around in a circle with the guys, and, and I just admitted, and I said, guys, I don't, I don't know how to get this out of me. Like, I'm feeling really incapable of getting this bitterness out of me. I don't know how to solve this problem. I'm just going gonna, gonna to confess it to you, but I don't know what to do with it. I said the same thing to, to my wife. I said, babe, I don't know how to beat this bitterness. I don't know how to let go of this offense. I'm feeling just incapable. Like I'm trying to do things, but it's like I'm taking vitamins and I need, I need some work in here to happen. So in that, I started reading this book and as this gal was describing prayer and our dependency upon God and how that displays itself in our prayer life, she said this very simple prayer. She said, you know, if you're struggling with something spiritually, just ask Jesus to step into that problem. And I was like a little insulted by the juvenile nature of that. But that's just pride. 
So now I have pride and bitterness. Great. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I remember us sitting down in my like green chair, drinking my coffee. And I was like, all right, all right, I'm going to try it. And so I just said, Jesus, will you step into my bitterness? I know it doesn't honor you. And I know I can't get it out myself. Would you step into my bitterness? And it was literally like, I think, three days after that prayer. He takes me to the, to the prayer of Stephen while he's being martyred in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen says this very simple prayer. As people are hurling rocks at his head, hoping to kill him. I mean, you talk about a reason you could be bitter about. That's a pretty big offense. And he says this wonderful prayer. Stephen says, Father, hold not this sin against them. And it was like, that just unlocked it for me. Hold not this sin against them. I can call it sin. I can call the offense, the hurt, the injury. I can call it sin with confidence. I can, I can say, no, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened. But I can also pray, but, but God, I want them to experience forgiveness. I don't want you to hold this sin against them because you don't hold my sin against me. Hold not this sin against them. And I tell you, that has really freed me from the sense of bitterness in my heart. Now, it's still a struggle to work through that. But I'm just asking the Lord to do that work because I can't do it. So friend, hear me. Whatever struggle you have spiritually, maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's bitterness like me. Maybe you're holding on to some sins, some offenses that have happened decades ago or maybe two years ago or maybe two months ago. And you can't shake it and you're just letting it fester. And it just stays there. Friend, let me tell you, that is a dangerous thing to play with. Don't let it fester. You shut the door and think it'll die in the dark. It won't die in the dark. It'll grow. Then it'll be a boogeyman in a closet that you don't ever want to get into. You got to open that door up. Let the sunlight come in and disinfect that. You got to let the surgeon handle your heart. But hear me. There is hope for you. You can always lean into it and you can always move forward. Why? Because he's the surgeon. He can change your heart and give you new desires and break your old habits and free you from the chains of your sinful addictions. You got to get to that point of despair and be like, dude, I can't do this. I remember sitting with my daughter and I was explaining, huh. we were just walking through the law and just walking through it was hard, man. Who wants to walk through the law? And I'm just explaining to her, yeah, here's the law here. And then Jesus says that law, it's also about your thought life. And it's also about your motives and intentions. And my daughter, Alexine, she's like crying. And she's like, Daddy, I can't do it. And you know the funniest thing about that moment? I was so excited. I said, baby, this is the point. That despair you feel, you should feel that. You can't be all that you should be. But this is one of the most freeing truths you can ever encounter in your life. Because until you get to that point, you'll never jump on the gurney and say, cut me open, change me. Until that nagging sense of despair that you should be better, until it grips you to the point where you know you'll never meet it. And you just say, fine, I give up. That's your moment of freedom right there. Surrendering to the surgeon. So friend, wherever you're at, you need to hear this. You can always move forward. Always move forward in your Christianity. Always move forward in pursuing after God. Always, because you are in the hands of the surgeon. 
So I, what I hope is that you would surrender to him today and say, God, open me up. Or maybe that simple prayer, Jesus, step into this. Step into my addiction. Step into my bitterness. Step into my insecurity. Step into my pride. Step into my anger and start cutting that stuff out of me. Now, maybe you're here and you're just exploring Christianity. Friend, I want, I want you to know you're going to get annoyed. I know you're like, this sounds like a great church. It is a great church, I promise. But the more and more you hang out with us and the more and more you read this book, let me just tell you right here, disclaimer, the more and more you engage the truth in here, the more you're going to be dissatisfied with the change you can cause in your life on your own. And maybe that's going to cause you to run away from church. I hope it doesn't. I hope what you see that that is the most liberating truth you could ever hear. You can't be what you should be. At least not on your own. If you surrender to him, friend, that's what you need to do. Stop taking vitamins. Stop taking vitamins. Stop the self-improvement. Stop all that. Just stop taking vitamins. Yeah, they're good. They're great. That's awesome. But you need heart surgery. We all do. And my hope is that you would stop giving all this effort to God and you just start to give him your surrender. Because effort is not enough. Surrender is what the surgeon wants of you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you that you can free us. Free us from our sinful habits. Free us from our sinful patterns. You can disrupt the evil rhythms of our life. You, you can free us from the tyranny we've placed ourselves under. Our flattery with sin has caused us to be enslaved. And now we live in shackles. And we cannot break them. They are ironclad. We cannot move them. We can exert effort. We can pull against the change. But all it will do is exhaust us. Because we cannot break them. We cannot liberate ourselves. We cannot change our heart. We cannot change our nature Praise God. Praise God. Praise you, Father, that you can do that. And through Jesus Christ, your Son, through his death and resurrection, transformation is promised to us. We can enjoy the day where we can be all that we should be. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for the promise that you give to all of us, all of us who are followers after you, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. You'll finish this work. And I know, I know, Father, I, I'm work. <laughs> I admit that. I wish all my desires were lined up according to yours, but I know they're not. But I know you're not giving up on me. I know you're with me and you're working those things out of me. So, Father, I pray right now. I pray, Father, that what you'd hear from everybody here right now, whether they're online or they're in the room, what you would hear, Father, is surrender. What you would hear, Father, is not, I'm going to pledge myself to do these things. Rather, it would be, I'm going to allow myself to be worked on by you. May you hear surrender as we sing and as we celebrate communion. May you hear and see the surrender that is in our hearts. Thank you for being the great surgeon. It's in Christ in my prayer. Amen.